If you'll turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 4. My topic this evening is the faith of Christ's body. One of my favorite subjects was given to Pastor Stan last night, the faith of Christ. So I'm going to try to steal a little of his thunder by way of introduction to the faith of Christ's body because there's a real connection. The body of Christ could have no faith and could not be faithful in any sense of the word if it were not for the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'd like to read a few verses, <clears throat> beginning with verse 1. So let a man account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing against myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord come, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Then dropping down to verses 16 and 17. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which are in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. One of the most blessed truths in the word of God deals with the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus and the faith of Christ's body is dependent upon that. Very often we use the word faith and yet we do not even stop to define it and I'm glad that we have had some definition concerning it but just by way of stirring up our minds from last night so that we may use that as a springboard for the faith of Christ's body, and I'm taking it from an individual view. We could have taken it as a corporate view, but I want to take it as an individual view concerning you and me individually as we make up corporately the body of Christ. We find that the scripture tells us that as we saw last night in Galatians 2, and I'd like us to turn there, keep your finger here and 1 Corinthians 4, however, in Galatians 2, it tells us two very important things. First of all, it tells us the basis upon which man stands justified before Almighty God. Now, I wish I knew this years ago, but I didn't. And I've shared this before at the conference, so for some of you it may be... Uh, bearing some repeating to you, but nonetheless, it's true. I don't know how many years uh, I did not have uh, eternal security. I wasn't certain I had eternal security because I really didn't understand about the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. I really didn't trust him as a faithful Savior. And I was taught uh, not really outwardly in words altogether, although sometimes in words that he wasn't very faithful. We would hear people about saying, oh, he was saved, but implying that he now isn't. Or you would hear other people talking about different terms whereby others may know, but you may not be able to know that you are. And coming from a church that we had to die to find out whether we belong to the Lord or not didn't give you much security either. 
Ah, but when I came and finally understood, now it was before I was in the grace message that I understood or that I heard about the faith of Christ. I heard a preacher preaching on it one time, although he didn't make it as clear as uh, Pastor Sam did last night, or that he has in his little booklet that he puts out, and I think everyone could have a copy of it. It's really an encouragement. But nonetheless, he did bring out about the faith of Christ. And I almost fell off my feet when I saw it. I thought, there it's been, how long it's been in there, and I never even noticed it. And I wasn't even in the modern translation. The King James translation, I didn't even see it. It's like those verses that you don't understand, so you flip over it thinking, I'll get illumination on it sometime in the future, or it can't mean what it obviously is saying. And so I change it oftentimes into my faith in Christ rather than the faith of Christ. But now he says here in verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith, the fidelity, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faithfulness, the fidelity, the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified. How many in fundamentalism rejoice, and I'm not using that word to discredit it because I'm not ashamed to call myself a fundamentalist, as long as we have the same definition for the word, believing in the inspiration of the scriptures, the virgin birth, the finished word of the Lord Jesus, I'm not ashamed of that. But how many will rejoice over the fact that it's not by the works of the law we're justified, but do think we're basically justified by our faith in Christ. And hence, when our faith leaves Christ, the suggestion is then we're no longer justified. Therefore, he was saved once and is not now. But no, we find that the basis is on the faith of Christ, his fidelity, his faithfulness, his complete trustworthiness, and what in that faithfulness he has done on our behalf. Not only did he come to keep the entire law, as he said, not to destroy it, but to fulfill it, then he came and shed his precious blood for those who already had broken it and shredded underfoot, if you please. Those of us whose only uh, just do would be condemnation. And there he shed his blood for us and faithfully bore our sins on Calvary's cross that we might be justified, not by the works of the law, but by his faithfulness. And then coming down to verse 20, that was also noted last night. And if you notice, you take a number of your translations, and I find this interesting, that while many of them change verse 16 to the faith in Christ, they usually leave verse 20 saying the faith of the Son of God. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because that still gives them a problem. Not, of course, that they understand verse 16, but he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness, the fidelity of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, there are many things that could be said on that, and we can't get into the faith of Christ tonight, but one thing is certain. Our entire salvation, the basis whereby our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, any aspect of our redemption is based on the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, and we are as secure right now in this church as we'll ever be in heaven, because it's on his faith, not ours. All right, but now, while that be true, we can rejoice over that, now we have to come back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, and we must realize <clears throat> that there's a faith required, it's also in Galatians 2, of course, that we're required uh, to place in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, or in the faith of Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. 
we find that uh, God isn't going to just say a whomsoever, it's the whomsoever who believeth. And we find that faith is required. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we find that it says in verse 2, Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful or full of faith. Now, as I started studying for this topic, <clears throat> I don't like teaching or giving a topical sermon. That's why I've sprinkled it a little bit more with scripture verses. I'd rather uh, preach as an expository uh, sermon, but nonetheless, the topic that was given me to do it justice, and on the basis that's what's already gone this week, I'm going to steal thunder from everybody. Uh, I think it's good to bring it all together so that when we go home, we can say, yes, that makes sense, and this makes sense. So not only are we going to refer to what uh, Pastor Sam has said, we're going to refer to what a number of the other pastors have said and try to bring it in together so that we can take it home in our fall. We're going to look at faith that is objective. And we're going to look at faith that is subjective on the believer's part now. And we're going to look at faith that is to be judged. Firstly, objective faith. We all know this verse so well we need not even turn to it. But where in Acts 16, 31, the Lord says, uh, where Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. How many times we've seen that verse written, or we've heard it spoken about. And yet we find, no matter how many times you hear it, it's simple, it's plain, it's true. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But it's not sufficient. While it is true, believe what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in what way? And what about the Lord Jesus? Have you ever stopped and asked people? I do that once in a while when I have a group and it's a little bit informal. Ask them what is necessary to be saved. What do you have to believe to be saved? And I'll tell you, boy, some of them require so many things that you have to be a, a theologian of 30 years standing in order to believe or be saved. But we find that's an interesting thing. Believe what on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved? <clears throat> Now, as I've said before, you can't deny the deity of Christ and be saved, but I believe you can be saved even not understanding the deity of Christ anyway. But nonetheless, we find there are certain things that must be believed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. First of all, that's the objective faith for the believer. We find that goes towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the object. But believe what about the Lord Jesus? Well, first of all, we also know from Romans the 10th chapter, that the faith that comes to us comes through the Word of God. So we'd better turn to the Word of God to find out how that faith comes, or what to believe, rather, about that faith. Turn with me, rather than uh, to Romans uh, 10, I just was mentioning that, I'd rather you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Believe what about the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we have to believe to be saved? And the answer we ought to give is the Gospel. We have to believe the gospel to be saved. Now, I was reading a book by a certain man who wrote a book about faith. I'm not going to mention the man's name because I don't want to buy the book. It was about the, the most uh, twisted book that I've ever read on the subject of faith. But he believed more than faith was required at the same time saying only faith is required. But nonetheless, he, re, he uh, demanded a repentance that you and I had to perform and even at the same time saying we couldn't perform it anyway. But he took the Philippian jailer as an example. And he says, how many people today have yanked that out of context, of course, myself included, and how many fundamental people say, all you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, first of all, I don't believe anybody can be saved without repentance. But I believe that is a part of uh, belief. 
as one believes, he repents. If he doesn't repent, he doesn't believe. But he made this a separate entity in itself, and he used the Philippian jailer as a proof. He says, look at how his heart was prepared before he believed. Look, he was crying for illumination when the man cried for a light to come in to see whether Paul and Silas was there. And he says, look how he is at the end of his rope, ready for salvation. All I know of that seems to be saying something different than that to me. He was crying for illumination, not to look for the Lord, but to look to see if Paul and Silas was there. And not only that, he was at the end of his rope all right, but I like, as one man says, at one end of it. Whenever we come to the end of our rope, which at the top or at the bottom? But at the same time, while it's true God used that to save the man, the man was ready to kill himself in desperation. He wanted to take his life and commit suicide. He wasn't ready to turn to the Lord. We don't have every single word that was spoken in that dissertation with Paul, but I'm sure that before Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he was certain that that man understood what terms he was talking about when he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wish more fundamental broadcasts on the radio programs and television programs would be more accurate about that. How many times people are wooed into coming down the aisle because Russia might be conquering the United States. I heard a, an hour program by a certain evangelist uh, that I know was a fundamental man, and uh, we're not allowed to say names, right? So I can't say Jack Benimpe, is that right? But nonetheless, he was on television national broadcasting, this certain evangelist. He was on for an hour. After he was all done, not once did he give the gospel. Not once. The only thing he warned people was that we were going to go to war with Russia. If they wanted to escape that war, they better get saved that night and come down the aisle and receive the Lord Jesus. That was all. And our program, a leading fundamentalist, now I know he knows the gospel, and I know he could present it far better than that, but I'm saying a whole hour and not even the gospel presented. We find that in order to have our salvation, we must place our faith, our objective faith, in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. And we must place it in the good news that he proclaims to us. In 15, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen. Now, I'd like us to note something here. The death, the burial, the resurrection is presented here as a fact, isn't it? That it actually, literally, positively happened. And that whole uh, context shows us that that's the entirety of that gospel that he's talking about. Not just the death. If Christ simply died but didn't raise from the dead, what good does that do? And if he just died and didn't die for our sins and raised from the dead, what good does that do us? But that he died for our sins, was buried and rose again. But notice, he doesn't just present the fact, but what does he present that fact as? Good news. You see, We have to accept that fact as good news or you're not saved. The Roman church accepts the fact, at least they're supposed to be anyway, and many people accept the fact, but what's the good news? Is the good news in the Roman church, in the Orthodox church, in most Protestant churches, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again? 
trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus? No. We find Christmas, they come and remember his birth. On Easter, they come and remember his uh, death and burial and resurrection. And then they go on and tell us, keep the law, keep the sacraments, be good, do good to your neighbor, and on and on and on, and maybe you'll go to heaven. That's their good news. They present the death, the burial, resurrection, those who even do do that, present that merely as a fact. And that's not sufficient. That fact has to be accepted as the good news. We must see that it's a finished thing, that it's already done. Now we find that when we see this, when we see the good news, when we see the fact that Jesus Christ died there on that cross, just in case there's anyone here tonight, because there may be someone here tonight who yet only accepts it as a fact and has not yet accepted it as the good news. I want you to understand this so carefully that when the Lord Jesus Christ died on that cross, he died for sin. There's no doubt about it. But he didn't die for his sin. <clears throat> the scripture tells us consistently that there was no sin in him at all. And that God laid on him the iniquity of us. And that on that cross, when he suffered and bled and died, he died there for sin, but not his for yours and for mine. And that God laid on him the iniquity, and there, on that cross, once and for all, God was satisfied. And not only satisfied just for the sins of the past, but for the sins of the present, for the sins of the future, for sin. He died unto sin once and for all. Now we find that that's what God tells us Christ faithfully did. He faithfully did that. Now also the scripture tells us that God faithfully will justify us on the grounds of the fact that we place our faith in his faithfulness. Turn with me to Romans 4 just for a moment. I love this verse so well. <clears throat> I tell my we have several Bible classes in our area, and one we have over 30 people who are Roman Catholics that come out. And that's something weekly, by the way. Not always 30, but usually between 20 and 30 that are coming out. But if they all came out at once, it would be around 30. <clears throat> now, many of them are now saved. <clears throat> and recently we had a few, uh, this class has been going on for a couple of years, and we had a few who just recently uh, joined with us in membership as well at our church. I'm not saying the membership saved them, but I'm saying they were saved and they wanted to they wrote to the bishop and they told him they don't want to be a member of the Roman church anymore, that uh, they told him exactly why, that they've been deceived and that the church is not preaching the gospel and they preach the gospel to them. Better track you couldn't write. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we find that when I talk to them, I tell them this, if there's any book the Roman Catholic Church ought to know, what book is it? It's the book of the Romans, isn't it? But if they really knew that book, there would be no Roman Catholic Church as it now stands. Look what he says here in Romans 4 and just see how it changes the course of things. Look at verses 4 and 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly... I'm sorry, I missed verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. How many times we're uh, hearing people saying they're working at God's grace, you know, they're trying to merit God's grace. As soon as you try to merit something, you can't have it. It's no longer grace. As Paul says, otherwise grace is no more grace and work is no more work. He says, <clears throat> now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. When any man or woman goes at the end of his or her work week and goes to get the paycheck, that's not grace. That's debt. 
And we find he says to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But then he goes on, he says, but to him that worketh not, or does not work. Now, isn't it true most people think that we're saved because we're working at it? You talk to somebody and say, I'm trying to, I'm working at it. As soon as you hear somebody saying that, you have to have some concern. Because as long as we're working at it, we're not accepting the finished work of the Lord Jesus. That's one of the reasons why so many people in the holiness movement are still looking for deliverance. They don't realize they've already been delivered. It's not something to be worked at. It's something to be received in the same way that we receive the Lord Jesus, so walking in him. How? By faith. If they would place their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, God by grace would grant it unto them. And you and I, at any point in our life, when we realize that we're ready to fall in sin, we must remember this, what God says. We don't have to sin. At any point. And by faith, believe it. And accept God at his word, and by grace you'll receive it. If you don't think it doesn't work, try it. The only reason we, it fails is because we don't believe God. We've come to a certain place where we say, God is not faithful. He's allowed me to be tempted above which I'm able to bear, and we crumble with it. But we find as long as we put that faith in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, knowing that he says what he means and means what he says, we find we will receive the grace to be able to stand as well as the grace to be saved. But thank God he doesn't save us and keep us saved on our faithfulness. Isn't that true? It's on the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, and it is going to abide because he, in his faithfulness, always abides. But to him that worketh not, but believeth. So belief is not a work. He just finished saying, to him that worketh not, but believeth. Well, if faith is not a work, what is it? You know, that's a problem with somebody. I don't know. Maybe it's because of Mr. Newell saying it. There are a few things he said that was good. And uh, he says faith is an attitude, isn't it? If I trust you or have confidence in you, isn't it really an attitude that I have toward you? In other words, if someone says something happened, no matter how uh, ridiculous it might sound, maybe someone says a flying saucer landed out in the front yard here and comes in and tells it to me, and if this man is a habitual liar, I'm not going to be too shaken up about it. But if somebody that I have confidence comes in and says that, I think I'll go out the back door rather than see what's in the front door, you see. I'll have faith in his faithfulness, you see. But nonetheless, it's an attitude. You're not going to see me in here saying, oh, I'm trying to build up faith for it. Either I believe him or I don't believe him. Either I believe God or I don't believe God. It's not something you work up about. It's the matter of whether we know he's faithful or not. In other words, we have to get into the word of God and see and whether or not that the Lord Jesus Christ is faithful or not. When we come to the facts and understand that he is absolutely faithful, the faith will flow. It won't, it'll come as natural as it should come. Faith cometh how? By hearing the word of God. Now he says, but believeth. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. There's a third misconception. How many people think God justifies the godly? I'm trying to keep his law. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to do, go to church. I'm trying to do these things. Therefore, God will justify me. Oh, no. You don't need to be justified if you're good. But if you're good, then you're not part of Adam's race. We find that Christ died for the ungodly, and he's here justifying the ungodly. But to him that worketh not, but to him that believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's an objective faith. As we trust in God, as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we trust the good news concerning him, and every one of us this evening who are really children of God, we've expressed that objective faith, have we not? We have by grace, receive that, 
and placed our uh, by we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have received the grace of God and we have been saved once and for all and for all eternity. But there's more to it than just that. That's not where faith stops. Now let's go back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. God not only demands faith as far as our objective faith, but he also demands subjective faith. God not only wants us to place our faith in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, but he wants us to act faithful. We find that there is the subjective faith. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, look what he says. For this cause have I sent unto Timothy, who is my beloved son, and faithful, full of faith in the Lord. Timothy was one that he could say was full of faith. Here he's talking about the character of Timothy, isn't he? He's a faithful man. He's full of faith. You and I know of people who are characterized by their faithfulness. We can read the... uh, accounts of what's going on in their lives you can look through uh, i think often when i read the controversy because there's a number of people in there that i at least knew personally to some degree and to see in some areas where they were unfaithful and to see others where they remain faithful and isn't it a blessing to see men who stand firm for god and who are faithful and they're characterized by their faithfulness well that's what he says about timothy you don't have to be just uh, an elderly person to show your faithfulness you can show your faithfulness from the very beginning of your salvation because God is there giving us that ability to be faithful as we rely upon him his strength is sufficient his grace is sufficient so Timothy's called faithful I'm going to give you just a few verses which I would rather you not turn to because time is going for from us but just to show where this faithfulness is spoken of as a characteristic full one full of faith Galatians 3, 9, Abraham is called faithful Abraham, one that was full of faith. Ephesians 1, 1, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. As speaking to the whole uh, church at Ephesus, and if it was a, sec- uh, a circular letter, then it was to all that it ever uh, was to go into. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 21, Tychicus is called a faithful minister in the Lord. In Colossians 1, 7, Epaphras, a faithful minister of Christ. Colossians 4, 9, Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. How many times that word is used? Faithful, full of faith, these different men. So it's speaking here of their subjective faithfulness. Now here's where our subjective faithfulness is different from that of the Lord. Our subjective faithfulness is based upon our objective faithfulness. We're only as faithful as what we have confidence in the Lord Jesus, you see. We don't have something within ourselves. But the Lord is faithful because he's faithful and the lord has faith because he's faithful in other words when we talk about the righteousness of god we're not saying god is righteous because he does right things we say he does right things because he's righteous and when we talk about adam's race we don't say we're sinners because we sin we say we sin because we're sinners it's a very part of our nature to be sinners and it's a part of god's nature to be absolutely righteous and to be absolutely faithful that's his character Now we find in our character, however, as believers, we are only as faithful in our life as we have faith in Christ. As much as we will have confidence and reliance on the Lord Jesus, to that degree, we'll be faithful. And isn't that true when you think about your lives? When is it that we give way? When do we give ourselves self-pity? And we all do it, don't we? 
when we start saying nobody knows the trouble I've seen, you know, and we start feeling down and low, it's when we start thinking that some things work together for good, but not all things, isn't it? It's when we have the faith in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. And when we realize that there's no testing taken us, but such is common to man. But how many times God brings us to the place where we say, oh, this one must be a record, see? But it is no record. God places us there so that the only way we can look is up and then find out that there is where he still is faithful, right to the bitter end. Now we find that our faithfulness, our subjective faithfulness, our characteristic of faithfulness, when I ever see somebody faithful, I know it's because of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, not because of anything within him. I liked uh, what Pastor Sam had up here last night, and he was very gracious not to say who it was that asked him why there was nothing on that other side. I won't say who it was. <laughs> but it's true. There's nothing there. See? But we find that the faithfulness is on God's part. And so we find that our subjective faithfulness is based upon the object of faithfulness, we place faith that we place in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. I hope that isn't confusing. I hope that's helping. But nonetheless, if you and I are faithful stewards, if we are faithful ministers, if we're faithful believers, it's because to that degree we have placed our confidence, our faith in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, not because there's something within us. So we find that the product of that faithfulness is a result of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. Now we find that the scripture also tells us, and this is a verse that we received the other day in 2 Thessalonians. And I'd like you to turn with me, please. Second <clears throat> Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 3. in verse 2 and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith or faithfulness not all men are faithful I think we've proven that haven't we and not, not all men are faithful even to each other much less to God and he says in the context he says from unreasonable and wicked men don't we find them around us all the time that we may be delivered from them one thing I learned this week by the wayside that I'm sure wasn't meant to be a, a lesson, but it was to me. After tomorrow morning, after this conference, uh, we're going to be heading down to St. Louis with uh, where Pastor Thurman ministers down there. <clears throat> and he said something in his sermon that troubled me. I was looking forward to going. It was really something that I still am, but now with fear and trembling. Because in his sermon, he said something. He said there are people that he knows about that I suppose is not too far from where he lives. He says that if he were to knock on their door, that there would be certain people who would yank him by the hand and club him on the head. <laughs> now, I'd say one thing about those people. <clears throat> they're not very faithful. <laughs> and uh, if he wants me to go on house house visitation with him, I'm really going to go on fear and trembling. But all men have not faith. All men are not faithful. And sorry to say, practically speaking, all, all Christians aren't faithful either. And we find that in our own practical life, that's a battle, is it not? Am I going to trust God? Am I going to believe God? Or am I going to believe the devil? Am I going to uh, let the old nature take its uh, free course? And the easiest path is always the one you've got to question. Because when it's easy in a world that's full of sin and shame, if it's easy, you've got to wonder whether that's the right direction to go. I think we ought to be like the salmon, go against the tide. 
And uh, regardless, there's something inside of us that'll push us on. And that's the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. So we find we have objective faith. That God demands and requires us to place in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. It's my believing in what Jesus Christ has done. It is my attitude towards God. I believe the word of God. I believe God is faithful. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ did exactly what he claimed he did on Calvary's cross. I believe God is propitiated. I believe he's satisfied, not with me, but what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. And therefore, I believe I'm justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. But more than that, not only that, but because I'm now right with God, because now I have been justified, and I like to to uh, state that justification, the little definition I like to give is to be declared eternally righteous. I like that. Eternally righteous. Not just for time, but for eternity. Declared eternally righteous before Almighty God. <clears throat> but because I am, now God wants me to act right. He wants me to act that way. Now things have changed, and here's where Pastor Johnson's sermon takes place. Uh, when he started talking this morning, and if I want that tape, I thought that was excellent. I like the practicalness of it. I like the fact that things that one time were accepted as norm, even among unbelievers, it was because the Christian influence influenced them. It's now the Christians are acting like the world because the world's influencing us. When he talked about the pilfering and taking little things, oh, a thing came back to my mind when I was in school. And I saw this chalk. I had the nicest chalk in school. You know, it was the kind you could write without it squeaking, you know, and things like that. And I wanted one so bad. And I remember going up to do a math problem, and there was all this little broken chalk all off in the corner. And I figured, who cares about that? You know, it's just chalk over in the corner. And while I was up there, I slipped it in my pocket. And I went home with that. But you know, that thing bothered me the whole day in school. And I'm an unbeliever at this time, by the way. That thing bothered me. I stole it, you know. I had taken something that belonged to, I thought it was a teacher's own personal chalk, you know. But regardless, I had done that and I was really upset about it. I got home, my conscience was still fighting. I had a little blackboard, slate blackboard, and I was going to write on it. But you know, I couldn't even get a stroke out on that thing. I put it back in my pocket, went back to school the next day, and I was going to slip it back in the chalkboard. And I couldn't do that either. So I went to the teacher and I said, teacher, I'm sorry. I said, I've stolen something. Oh, she looked at me like that was the worst thing that could happen. And she was right. Uh, and I said, I've stolen your chalk. And then she looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and she took it back. She didn't commend me or reprimand me. She just took it back. But you know, why was it my conscience was so bothered by that? Because I was a believer. I wasn't even a believer at the time. But because there were moral standards round about me that were telling me that was wrong. How come today the Christian church stands back and says, what's right, what's wrong? Where everything is being reinterpreted today. Where's decency? How many times we're told to live godly lives, not just have godly theology, but also that our lives back up our theology? How come we have to start thinking, well, is it right or wrong? Is it now right? Can we do this now when it was wrong before? Oh, I find that uh, we are being taken away from our faith and the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, and we're putting our faith in unfaithful men who are trying to deceive us. <clears throat> Well, we better be careful of that because there's a time coming back now to 1 Corinthians 4 when in verse 2 <clears throat> and onward tells us that God is going to judge us someday and he's going to judge us according to our faithfulness. I'd like to begin with verse 1. <clears throat> Let a man so account of us 
as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful or full of faith. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. Then he drops, let's drop down to verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. Then shall every man have praise of God. Could there be any better judgment? To know the hidden things of darkness, to know the very counsels of the heart, <clears throat> there's a time coming when we are going to be judged for our faithfulness. That's why he says, above it all, we have to be faithful. That's what's required. Now, I'd like to exhort every person here, if you're a believer, if you're really trusting, having confidence in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, God requires us <clears throat> to be faithful. Now, that doesn't mean that goes against grace. I'm afraid sometimes we use words a little bit incorrectly because we can uh, make someone misunderstand us. When someone says to me, I can drink, I can smoke, I can swear, I can blaspheme, well, that's true. We have the ability to do that because we have the old nature, but I may not do that. God doesn't give me permission to sin any more today than he did under the law. If I'm a child of his, I have less reason now today than the person under law. We find that when Paul tells us, and very clearly, and I'd like to bring this to our thoughts too, and uh, I hope, I'm glad this is the last service because you can't really fight me on this one, but I believe it's true, that when the apostle Paul tells us we are not under law, he's not saying that we are without law in every aspect because we find him also telling us, as he says in uh, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9.21, uh, where he, well, let's turn to it instead of just taking my word for it. Chapter 9, verse 21. This is the New Evangelicals' favorite, one of their favorite portions of Scripture. And it's because they don't understand what the Apostle here says. The Apostle Paul is not saying that he became without law to those without law. In other words, he, he was lawless. Or that he brought himself under Judaism to please the Jews. Or he acted like the Gentiles and riotous living, whatever else. In other words, in his attitude, in his mental attitude, just as you and I do, do we not? When we deal with a Jew, we deal with him in a way that he'll understand. Well, we find that as he speaks here, and he says in verse 21, he makes it very plain that he's not saying that he became lawless. He says, to them without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law or in law to Christ. The believer is not without law today. There are numbers of laws we can talk about. What about the law of the Spirit, that of life in Christ Jesus? What about that law? Isn't that law still in operation? Are we not under that law? Do you not find the law in me that when I would do good, evil is present with me? Is that law not functioning today? Now we find that we're not under the law as a covenant. That's true. The covenant of law is done away. But we also find in Romans 8, 4, that he tells us plainly, and maybe you'll turn with me to Romans 8, 4, <clears throat> I'm trying to beat the clock and you're all Bible searchers so <laughs> Romans 8 4 <clears throat> let's look at verse 3 first for what the law could not do what law is he talking about there what law could not do what isn't it the law of Moses isn't it the, the legal system what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. No, we're not under the law. Thank God, because we couldn't perform the law. Why? Because we're weak through the flesh. But what we couldn't do, God did on our behalf. So what is the purpose of that reason? Why did Christ go to Calvary's cross? That the righteousness of that law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. We find that God tells us that he died to save us from our sins, that we might be justified, we may be right. And that that righteous standard that God always required is still his righteous standard. It's still wrong today to lie. It's still wrong today to murder. It's still wrong today to commit adultery. And I don't care if all the new or old morality and everything else mixed up in between. God's going to hold us responsible. His word is there. And believers, that's where our problem is. We left the word of God. We're now off on this tangent, that tangent, this philosophy, and that philosophy. And Dr. So-and-so says, and Professor So-and-so says, and they're all doing it. My children aren't even very old, and we have that same problem. They come home, and they're all doing it, see? And I remember I hated it when I was a boy, but I still do the same thing. I don't care if the whole world's doing it, David. I don't care if the whole world's doing it, Mika. Your hair is going to be a certain length. Oh, I don't care, see? Your dress is going to be a certain length. Your uh, trousers are going to look a certain way. They're not going to have patches in it and look like it threw into a bottle of Clorox. You're going to look like a human being. Now you might say that's legalism. I'm telling you, under grace, there's still law. Not the covenant of law. Just as surely under law there was grace. We find that that doesn't mean the fact that today God has set us free to sin. He set us free from sin. And thereby tells us also now back to 1 Corinthians 4 that it's required. God requires of a, a steward, and you're the steward of God if you're a child of God, that you be found faithful. And he's going to hold you responsible. He's going to hold me responsible. As I say, it's an awesome thing. If I'm telling you what is wrong in the Word of God, no matter how sincere I am about it, I'm wrong. But at the same time, you're responsible before God to search whether or not what I'm saying is right. And you'd better search the Word of God to see, and then your faithfulness had better be upon his faithfulness, not what I tell you. Don't trust my faithfulness, but trust his faithfulness. So we find he says that we are required. Now, just turning back one page, and this we're going to have to close. <clears throat> I believe here we have <clears throat> statements dealing with the judgment seat of Christ. When you and I as believers, this is 1 Corinthians 3, when you and I as believers are going to give an account of ourselves before God. However, I believe this deals with every single member of the body of Christ. <clears throat> but particularly, this has to do with the pastors or with the leaders or with the teachers. If you're a teacher, you claim to be a teacher. I don't care if you're a Sunday school teacher, if a pastor, an evangelist, I don't care whatever you call yourself. You handle the word of God and you teach others the word of God. You better take particular attention uh, to this passage of scripture. He says in verse <clears throat> 10, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another buildeth on it. But let every man take heed how he buildeth. Now why? Because God requires us to be faithful. He requires us to be faithful even to the, to the uh, blueprint that he's laid down here. And he's going to hold us responsible just as surely as if you built something and you hire somebody to build it according to your instructions. You require them to be obedient to that, and God does with us as well. And then goes on and shows to us, we'll drop down here a little bit, when he says uh, in verse uh, 14, 
If any man's work abide which he hath built upon it, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And I must confess, whenever we get here again, I have to shut my mouth. You know, there are times that it's good just to be quiet. When it comes to where God's sovereignty and man's human responsibility comes in here again, I see both and I don't understand how it comes together. I don't understand how, how God gives me the faith, yet holds me responsible, yet rewards me on the faith that he gives me, but he does. I'm not worried about that part. All I'm worried about is that I be faithful to the degree that I can best be faithful, and when I get to heaven, he'll straighten it all out. Maybe. I Maybe I'll never figure it out. But nonetheless, he tells us, don't worry about God's side. He can take care of that. Do you believe that? Yeah. I really do. I think he does well. Even before I was born, he made it pretty well. And he'll make it pretty well after I'm gone. But at the same time, we find that while we are here, he requires us to be faithful. Maybe I don't understand it all. Maybe I can't give it to you all the way I'd like to give it to you. Maybe someday in some future time I'll know a little bit more and then I'll come back and tell you a little bit more. But right now, I know one thing that God says he demands us, he requires of us as stewards of his that we be found faithful. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we really are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only reason God left us back here is to be ambassadors for Christ. You want to go to heaven, he wants in heaven more than you want to go. He loves us far deeper than we love him. But we've been left back here for a purpose. And by the grace of God, let's be faithful to that purpose. Let's not, like the man, as he tells us, who wants to run a race and win that race, let's not get entangled with the affairs of the world. And let's not start using their philosophies, but let's get back to the word of God. And let's desire to be the ambassador look like one, act like one, talk like one, but there's only one way you'll ever be. That's if you have your faith in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. And to that degree, you will be faithful. And to that degree, there'll be a day when you'll stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be rewarded. The only reason why we as pastors have come here, the basic reason why we came for fellowship too, but the basic reason we've come really is to try to encourage all of us, ourselves included, but you as well, to carry on. Don't give up. Go on, because there's so many things that are trying to stop us. Our faith wavers. See, that's why we have to gather together and to encourage each other and provoke each other. And I hope we have provoked each other unto love and good works. It's easy to provoke each other the other way, isn't it? But if we provoke you tonight and this week by the messages that were given last night and tonight and for the pastors, all the different thoughts that have been given to us, Let's not go away provoked, but let's go provoked unto love and unto good works until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Shall we close and get the word of prayer? Our Father, we thank thee that thou art faithful. And even if we're not faithful, you abide faithful because you cannot deny yourself. And we thank thee, our Heavenly Father, that while we know that thou art absolutely faithful we also know that thou dost require us and have even made provisions whereby we may be faithful unto thee give us that grace to believe it and that grace to stand firm and having done all the stand stand therefore for we ask it in our faithful lord and savior jesus christ amen